Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's a huge one, folks. It's a huge one. It is live from the House of Vans in Chicago. We have Dillinger 4 and Lawrence Arms. Well, some of Dillinger 4 and all of Lawrence Arms on the show today uh, for an amazing but brief, but amazing conversation on a wide variety of topics. Uh, more on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. Send me an email. You can find me on various forms of social media at Damien. If you want to support this po- podcast and, uh, and contribute to it in some way, you can subscribe to it. You can write a review on iTunes. You can rate it. You can tell your friends about it. That's probably the best way to do it. Tell all your friends. Let everybody know about Turned Out a Punk. Um, and if you subscribe to it, you will find out that we have other podcasts in the Turned Out a Punk family, including Oil and Flowers, uh, Clobbering Time, which will be back one day, hopefully. Um, but yeah, there's all that stuff there. Uh, and if you use Facebook, you can find Turned Out a Punk on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. Us being my brother, Tristan Abraham, who helps me produce this show, and myself. We want to hear from you, though, so please get in touch with us. Because uh, turn it a punk, big things are happening. Big things are happening around this show, and things are changing. First and foremost things to change here is now this show is brought to you by the good people at Vans. And I told you that this relationship was going to yield many amazing positive things because I've experienced before from the people at House of Vans that I've gotten to do amazing things with them, like play with the Chromags and do all this stuff. Well, the first amazing thing to come out of this relationship with Vans has already happened. Vans and the House of Vans, uh, which is an incredible concert series that they put on, flew me out to Chicago so I could record this very cool live podcast. I got to sit down with um, some new friends, some old friends, got to chat with people that I've wanted to talk to on the show for a long time. First of all, the Lawrence Arms are on the show. So Brendan, Neil, and Chris are incredible. I've gone to tour Australia with them. And I've, I've wanted them on the show for a long time. And here they were playing what can only be described as a mind-blowing hometown show. Uh, I got to steal them for a couple minutes before, a few minutes before, and sit down and have a chat. They're going to be back, though, for part twos if you're like, oh, that was so short. There's three of them. I want more. I want more. Don't worry. More is coming. And they're speaking of more on this episode. Not only that, you also get two members of Dillinger 4, my buddy Eric and my buddy Patty, who I've wanted to have on this show forever. I think Patty might be one of the most requested guests we get into the show when people are requesting guests. And so you get a taste of it today. You don't get the whole thing. Patty's going to have to come back. Believe me, we talked about this backstage. Patty will be back and it will be amazing. But you get a little taste of it this time. And Eric will be back too. And then Brendan and Neil and Chris, of course, from Lawrence Arms. Um, But yeah, so thank you so much to the fine people at Vans for, you know, giving me the opportunity to kind of keep doing this podcast and make upgrades to it and, and do fun things like go to Chicago and not request me to do anything. And you don't have to worry. I'm not going to interrupt this episode and do plugs for them. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to fill out any surveys or anything like that. Vans is just, you know, they, they dig this podcast and they wanted to help out and help me keep doing it. So thank you to them. That's, that's amazing. I, I'm still in shock. So I really love them for doing that. I got to say also thank you to Brooke and Chuck and everyone at House of Vans for taking such good care of me 
and setting up a cool space to do this. I love doing this. I'm going to be doing a lot more at the House of Vans over the summer with other musicians and other artists that are coming through there and doing these live podcasts because, you know, it's a lot of fun. So I'm not going to rabble on, rattle on, rabble on, rattle on too much longer. I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and listen to Turned Out a Punk live from the House of Vans in Chicago with the Lawrence Arms and members of Dillinger 4. Thank you everyone for coming to the Chicago House of Vans! Oh my God, there must be at least 3,000 people here right now. And they're all just ready to hear people talk about punk. So... Um, I, it's, a, it's a huge honor to be here in this city. Uh, I was thinking about this today. Chicago, for 90s punk and, and into the 2000s, it, this is like the epicenter. Like, you could be talking about Lingua Armada and Los Crudos. You could be talking about the Broadways. You could be talking about Cap and Jazz. You could be talking about Victory Records. You could be talking about a lot of stuff. Not all the same level of quality, but it all comes from this place right here, the second city or as I like to call it, kind of like Toronto. So I want to invite some Second City Saints. That's one of many wrestling references you'll hear tonight. I want to invite the Lawrence Arms to the stage. Thank you. Hi. Chicago heroes. Hi. Chicago Hello. heroes. Hi. Chicago. No, heroes, people. heroes. And I, you don't, I don't expect you to describe yourselves as heroes. That's my job. But um, I've really wanted to have a chance to kind of sit down and, and talk to you guys. We did do a tour together in Australia one time. Very true. But it was before I had a podcast. I, I mean, we were also on tour with, what, Metallica? We were on tour with Metallica. So, you know, it's, it's not surprising that we got a little lost in the shuffle. Yeah. You rubbing elbows with James and shit. Let's just say Metallica <laughs> did not do an episode either. <laughs> a lot of people were ducking the podcast yeah. on that trip. A lot of people. But, you know, it was Soundwave. There was a lot of partying going on. I had just discovered marijuana. <laughs> I heard of it. And, uh, you know, the, there was some drinking going on, too. Heard of that, too. And, uh, but, you know, we, we, we survived. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, I think... Um, that's sort of the, the beauty of this entire uh, endeavor. And when you uh, <laughs> dedicate your life to something so ridiculous as this, if, if you get out there and you can you know, navigate the drinking and the drugs and all that kind of stuff, and you come back home, and you're like, oh, no, I, I get that shit. It's fine. You know, and it's, it, it, you're still alive. It, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, people. Yes. I don't know if you've heard that expression. And I think any band that has survived touring multiple tours with no effects... Yeah. must be some of the strongest people in the <laughs> fucking world. That is, that is true. We have uh, survived multiple tours with no effects. And, in Germany, uh, no doubt. In Germany! All right. Oh, my God, the spankings you must have had to endure and the whippings. <laughs> there's, there's nothing quite like playing for a German no effects crowd. <laughs> I, I one time had to play for a New Mexico no effects crowd, and if that's any indication, I pity you so much. Yes. <laughs> Same amount of knives in the crowd, I would guess. <laughs> Uh, one time we opened for the Arcade Fire in Germany, and there's a woman in the crowd just screaming. And after the, the show, I went up to her. I'm like, what were you yelling? She's like, shut the fuck up. 
<laughs> you were terrible. That is, that yeah, is, that's, uh, that sounds about right. That's some typical German honesty, I guess. Well, but we're not here to talk about Germany. Thank we're, God. We're not even here to talk about Australia or New Mexico or any of these other bullshit places. We're here to talk about Chicago. Oh! And I like, I kind of, you guys, I think, are the, the band that, that, sort of fulfilled the promise of this scene, but the scene that you kind of came out of is a scene that's always fascinated me in Chicago, and it's like, because I think one of the greatest punk bands of all time, Crimp Shrine. Yes. Another greatest punk band of all time, 15. Yes. And where did that influence come in Chicago? Because, like, you know, you guys weren't the only band kind of taking that influence at that time, but it wasn't like there were, like, a lot of bands, or were there, that were kind of no. were spurning that. So, uh, so when I was... Ugh, sophomore in high school, um, Chris and I were in a band called Gladhand, and we were awesome. I just want to make that very clear. Wait, we, did you guys have any recordings? No. No, no. At which, no. Whew. Fortunately. So, <laughs> what was the vibe? What was the vibe? Of okay, the vibe of Gladhand was like, it was somewhere between like punk rock and like the Dead Milkmen, and there was a little bit of funk thrown in for I good think, measure. I think it, it was pro- like, there, the, the funk probably was... More than either of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Funkier Wait. than the first Bouncing Souls record? Uh, no, no. It was not. Well, well, we we had a black guy playing bass, so it was funkier, like, okay, legitimately. Legitimately funkier than <laughs> yes. the first Bouncing yes. Souls record. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we, we were just two dudes. Like, we grew up in the city, and, like, uh, neither of us had uh, older brothers or anything like that. So we just would go to Reckless Records and buy tapes, and we were like, man, I love this Minor Threat record. You know, I also love this record by this fucking terrible funk band and you know like I also love this Mother Love Bone record which is a a terrible uh, you know sort of Seattle band that spawned Pearl Jam and Mud Honey and shit and and, you know and we were like well you know we can just do all this kind of stuff so we had this terrible band called Gladhand that was just had no focus right and we went and played a show with a band called Slugbug from Elgin that was a really good pop punk band and uh I got in touch with those, or those guys got in touch with me or something, and I ended up in this band called Slapstick, right, which is a Scott punk band, and we're, woo! And, uh, legends, local legends! <laughs> and, uh, that first 7-inch is, like, one of the most valuable records from that period. Is that so? That first 7-inch goes for hundreds of dollars now. Oh, well, if anyone wants to buy a few, I have a ton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna talk after the show, buddy. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. <laughs> but, uh, but so, uh, you know... Those dudes were like, we're playing uh, ska punk. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Like, I, I have no, you know, like, I'm in a f- fucking funk metal punk band, you know? Like, I don't, I don't know anything. They're like, oh, it's just like Operation Ivy. I'm like, oh, I know that band. And they're like, yeah, that's ska. And I'm like, okay, cool. But so, like, Operation Ivy was such a heavy influence. So, like, the, the Gilman scene was such a heavy influence on just us, like, the individuals in Slapstick and, you know, a few people that, like, Chris and Steve Katzel, who would, like, form Tricky Dick like, right around that same time, and, like, our little tiny circle of people, and so we just sort of mined that scene for everything, and once you kind of, like, sort of, like, hit the groundwater, it was like, oh, it's all comes from Crimpshrine, and it's like, wow, this is a really great band, and oh, 15 is a really great band, and, like, you know, I remember that, like, the day I got my wisdom teeth pulled, Choice of a New Generation came out, and, oh. or not Choice of a New Generation, uh, Buzz, and I went and I got that, and I just listened to it. And I got that and uh, How to Clean Everything on the same day. And I listened to it, and I was like, huh. 
I don't want to play this fucking ska music anymore. <laughs> like, that shit is dope, you know? And, uh, and you know, it, it, just, it, it just sort of happened like that. I mean, it was just like a, a matter of like sort of falling into something, becoming like endemically connected to it, and then uh, discovering like where you came from, you know? Like the same way that like my mom knows who my fucking great-great-grandparents are, even mm -hmm. though, you know, she didn't know them. It's funny though, because they're like they're not a band that's been like, I don't. Know, they, I guess they, they, they had a big box set reissue just come out on Numero Group, but they're like one of those bands that I, I still think is kind of a deep cut. Well, the Chris, maybe you can help me out here. Their sound is um, out of tune. <laughs> what did you say? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> out of tune, kind of like. I mean, what was I think. One of the things that was really cool about finding those records was that it sounded like dudes who maybe we knew who didn't really know how to tune their guitars very well or whatever it was, or like rec had recordings that were just really rough and, and kind of like unproduced. And that I think was really attractive. Be like, oh man, we can do this. Like, we can do this too. Like, these guys are like us. Like, like there was definitely like, Duct Tape Soup and, like, Choice New Generation. Like, those records were awesome, but they also were so raw. And, like, that was, I think, like, something that just, like, started to turn the crank a little for us. You know, like, yeah. oh, man, we could, we can, like, make cool stuff like this. And I think the other thing about 15, like, when you, like, heard stories about these guys, like, on tour, like, playing out of, like, practice amps and, like, just this, like, really, like... Uh, I don't know, yeah, just like, like not even like garage, like living room style, you know, like punk rock music that, yeah, just like really uh, was super, like, I guess, influencing at the time. Yeah, you know? the, the one thing I remember is that like when we, you know, when we were like, holy shit, this, this bad religion is a good band and they're not on the radio. <laughs> you know, like, it's like these are, this is not Guns N' Roses. It's like, you don't need all that nonsense to be a fucking kick-ass band, right? And we're like, oh, there's no effects. They just sing about farting and shit, but that's even cooler. And then, and then all of a sudden it was like, well, these motherfuckers play in practice amps and they smoke weed and they smell like dog shit and they just, you know, like, they they're, standing there, they're standing there barefooted. Yeah, and they're eating trash on the stage and we're like, yep, okay, sign me up. Like, we're already on this, like, descent of what you need to be an awesome band and, like, you know, you hit rock bottom and there's Jeff Hot. Check it out. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's funny, man, because it's like, it's actually, they were, like, also talking about things that I think coming from Chicago were, like, you know, like, these are, like, different different kinds of stories than I think we really knew. And so, like, that whole Bay Area scene was starting to, like, yeah, they were writing and singing about stuff that, that, uh, that I think was different than our experience. And, like, so it started to be, like, okay, like, like the sound is really cool, but also, like, exposure to, like, like writing about different things. I mean, same with Op Ivy. It's like these guys are writing about things that are that are way outside of just, um, I don't know, like being disenchanted or whatever. And they also, I think, like the best thing about Fifteen is they had that one song, which is like, "Everyone move to Berkeley. You can eat for free here." And then that other song, the last record, like, "Don't move to Berkeley. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. All your heroes are dying on the streets." Yeah. And it was just like a mixed message. But I also like you know, and you're right. Like if you polish that up enough. That, that Gilman sound of that era becomes Green Day, and that's how it does wind up on the radio. Like, if you obviously change right, it. Right, sure. Yeah. But, Neil, you're coming at it from a different place, right? Uh, yeah, slightly. Um, I had an older brother. I'm a couple years younger than them, so 
Um, I sort of, I guess in like seventh, eighth grade, I would go through my brother's collection and I'd check out like the Black Flag record he had or DRI or, but the record I always gravitated towards was uh, Fugazi, like the 13th song record. So um, I kind of just met some kids in high school, like shortly after that, started playing music and then eventually uh, through skateboarding, we didn't actually go to the same high school, but through skateboarding friends, I met Tim Mackrath from Rise Against and uh, we started a high school band. And then we just kind of like wrote songs, kept our heads down. And, well, he was way more active. He was, you know, connecting all like local bands, like contacting them, trying to get collectives together where bands would help promote, cross promote other bands and things like that. And, uh, and so we would just play these different shows around town and Broadway's played with Baxter a few times, like 96, 97. And, um, we just sort of befriended each other through that scene. So I never really had like the lyrical kind of thing or like the sort of, it was more just like time and place. Like I'm hanging out with these folks skateboarding and you want to start a band. Yeah, I've heard this band Fugazi. Like that's the kind of stuff that. Can I, can I, uh, I mean, I've heard, I've told this story a lot and I don't even know if it's true, but <laughs> okay. I remember you telling me this and Tim telling me this because uh, uh, Neil and Tim's old band was called Baxter, right? And I recall this tale, and please tell me it's true. I hope I can, maybe. Um, <laughs> that you guys had no name for your band, and that you were going to play a show, and Tim's dad worked at the pharmaceutical company Baxter, and there was a bunch of hats, and Tim was like, well, if we call our uh, band Baxter, we can sell these hats tonight. It, 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 <laughs> that is 100% that is true. <laughs> Uh, it, it wasn't hats, though. It was actually just T-shirts that had a little Baxter logo here, and there were some mugs hanging out. And the, the, the funny thing about that is we, we only made our own shirts for our very last show, which was um, sort of a goodbye show because we knew we were ending. Rise Against had started. Lawrence Arms had started. We got our original uh, drummer, Tim Remus, from Sweet Cobra and a couple other bands. He was drumming. And um, we got the original guys, and, and uh, that was sort of the end of it, but that was the one day that we made t-shirts. <laughs> Out of the whole, like, three and a half years we were a band. For like a, but still, like, for a young band, you had that merch game figured out. It was hats. only, we only gave it to our friends. We oh. only had five or six. We didn't, we didn't have, like, a thousand t-shirts. No. You guys would have done better on the Warped Tour than the Lawrence Arms did. <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to talk about that in this particular oh, venue. Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's for the After Dark episode in the parking lot. <laughs> when we're thrown out. <laughs> but also, it's crazy, Baxter, how many people went on to do other bands from that band? Like three um, of you, right? Yeah, three of us, and then also this guy, Kenny, who um, was the drummer after Remus, he has a band called Anatomy of Habit, okay. which is kind of like a noise core. Like, they have like 20-minute long sort of challenging songs that are kind of brooding <laughs> and weird. You guys are going to love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ultimate punk. Bands with 20-minute songs are terrible. <laughs> Trust me. You, you have to want to be there, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, how, it's good if you, if you like it. How did you, but where did Baxter kind of fit in? Like, you're playing shows with, with Broadway's, but, like, did you guys fit in with more of the hardcore scene, or was it, like, is it yeah, just yeah. kind of an open scene of that? There point? was a slight hardcore tinge because Tim was, uh, Tim is a straight-edge guy. Mm. I was never straight-edge, but our band sort of, we hung out with straight-edge kids, you know, like the skater uh, a lot of wife beaters at the Baxter house. Yes. <laughs> you know, like Earth Crisis was a big band that like the all, shirts. all those guys would just, yeah. Um, 
So there's some hardcore, but uh, we, you know, we'd go see Pegboy play at Fireside, and then we'd come right home and we'd write a song after watching Pegboy play, being inspired by that. And, you know, so there's just like, there's different moments. And the Cap and Jazz was a big influence because, uh, I mean, Tim at, you know, at that age was just sort of exploring all the local stuff. And then Jawbreaker came into it. And he was, he got into more like Rancid and stuff like that. So there's, the, the music ended up not being super punk, but it was punk-minded. It, it seems like Chicago's like, and, and this is from an outsider, but it seems like there's a lot more broad acceptance of things that were punk. You know, like Touch and Go, by the time they moved here right. and Quarter Six started, they were doing a lot of stuff that didn't sound sonically at all like what would be capital P punk rock, but it still has a punk ethos to it. Yeah, I think that's like sort of the same thing as like what we were talking about uh, earlier. It's just like there, you don't have a big brother in Chicago. It's like there was no like black flag and there was no bad brands that yeah. came out of Chicago, you know? So it's like, you know, it's a big, you know, metropolitan city, but we're just like figuring it out on our own. So we're like, yeah, yeah, that's punk too, I guess, you know, because it's like, that's just what we had to deal with, you know? I mean, there was, like, such a, like, weird, like... I mean, when Chris and I were little in the city, it was so, like, factionalized, and it would be like, oh, here come the skinheads. Oh, shit, here come the rude boys. Oh, fuck, you know, like, here come the peacock punk rockers. You know, and it would be like, they'd all fight, and it was like, it was like being in a fucking... in the Warriors or something like that. But, like, you know, it was like all these different groups of weirdos, but, you know, it was sort of like basically understood there's like yeah i don't know we don't know we're just kind of and they like all went to ray gun shows yeah they all went to naked ray gun shows and beat the shit out of each other and then naked ray guns up there and they're playing a song about batman that's got like a jazz bass line (laughs) (laughs) this brings up an episode this brings up a point that might get us thrown off the stage and d4 might not come up and then if d4 does come up it might get patty to punch me in the face beautiful naked ray gun Kind of just mainly a Chicago thing, eh? Yeah, Naked Ray Gun was like when when we were kids, they would they would play uh, this local club here called the Riviera, which is a big stage. I mean, like we couldn't sell it out now, and they would sell it out like twice a year. Yeah, you know, and it was it was just like that was what you did. You know, it was it was the it was the punk rock homecoming and the punk rock prom. You know, like everybody, no matter what, you know, it's like it's kind of like. Now I look the the closest like I don't know what you say post sedent or whatever would be like uh, the Dropkick Murphys where it's like all of a sudden you're like oh look at all these different kinds of assholes that are here to like <laughs> kind of try to punch each other in the face <laughs> like that's that's like the closest thing I could come up with, with no offense to those like seventeen guys in that band because they're great <laughs> but but like. They, you know, it, like, you go to a Naked Ray Gun show, and it was like, you better know who you're standing next to because somebody is going to try to punch you in the face. But everybody is there to have a good time and see Naked Ray Gun, but there will be violence because there was this, this fucking weird scene. But it's super funny because you're right. I think it's like, I think growing up, we were, we were under the impression that Naked Ray Gun was, you know, like a big band everywhere. Yeah. And then, like, as you start to, like, hang out for a while, you're like, oh, wait, this is, like, pretty, <laughs> this is pretty fucking unique to... To Chicago. Because like, you guys don't know fucking jazz gone bad? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> but also, Chicago has such like, a, like a, a, a civic pride when it comes to bands from Chicago. Like, I remember coming here to buy Naked Ray Gun records, and they'd be twice as expensive as any other city. Or even Screeching Weasel records would be twice as expensive when you came here. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I guess I can't really speak to that. I don't, I don't know about like the, uh, the, the sort of commerce aspect of it. But I do know that, like, 
Um, and I say this with all due respect, both directions. There's nothing cool about being a band from New York, and there's nothing cool about being a band from LA. It's like every band is from New York, and every band is from LA. You know, it's like you move there, you're just like, it's like, yep, we're actually from Nebraska, just like these other 25 bands, and we moved to New York because like we like their leather jackets or whatever the fuck it is. You know, and and like, and that's and it's fine, and it's a very smart thing to do, and it's like you gotta fucking fish where the fish are, as they say. But at the same time, it's like Chicago. I think there's always been a little bit like. Hey, you know what? We're just gonna do this shit right here. It's cool. You know where we're big? St. Cloud, Minnesota. How about that? Lick a dick. You know, and and, 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 and I think there is, you know, it, it is like a sort of like shitty little brother syndrome or something like that. But at the same time, I think it's, uh, you know, that combined with the sort of fact that none of us knew what the fuck we were doing, kind of like led to an interesting stew. You know, around like 1995, 96, when things started kind of like coming out. Yeah, of and here. then that's when you get like a place like Fireside that like, like propped that whole thing up. You know, and then suddenly we had like, you know, then you have a community and that's like kind of thriving and like everybody's like really stoked and a part and becoming a part of it. And then it kind of just starts to ring out. And then suddenly you have, you know, I don't know, a ton of bands, all be all Chicago based, like kind of doing a variety of like independent music. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, Chris's band Tricky Dick was like kind of like a very like very like a grimple style band, right? And I played in Slapstick, which was like a Operation Ivy kind of band, but with horns, and we were 16. And and then uh, you know, we'd play with like these bands called like the Sauce Kings. That were like a funk band full of twins, <laughs> you know. Oh, twins? Yeah, yeah. And uh, how many twins? Uh, <laughs> full two, of twins. Two, two twins. That's that's that's, 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 uh, that's Guamper from Avail's like best quote. He goes, "Man, you get a load of those three twins over there." <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's Joe McMahon's story, not mine. So I can't really take credit for it. But yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want to do this again with each of you individually because it's been a lot of fun, but we don't have a lot of time, and we've got a lot of people sweating. Sure. So thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. It was awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. Chris, thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much. Give it up for the Lawrence Arms! And they're going to be playing tonight, too. Now, I say this a lot on this show, but I have an original list of people that I wanted to have on this show when I first, first started it. And Dillinger 4, as a band, is very close to the top. Because nice. you guys connect so many worlds, not just in punk, but for me personally. All right. And that's what this show's about, ultimately. Who's number, who's number one on the list? Number one on the list is Rick Rubin. Wrong. <laughs> Number two on the list is... Uh, uh, God, who was number two on the list now? I got it. I'm doing really well on it. He doesn't have a list. I do. I do. It's on my phone right here. I'll get it out and show you. But no, this is amazing. Thank you guys both for doing it. Because as I was giving everyone here in the audience a preview before you guys came out... You guys are the perfect guys to talk about this. Before you left this city and, and, and left it in the dust, you were here Jesus, for... Jesus, dude. 
It's all Chicago people right in front of us. Don't worry, I've already offended them by talking. Before you were like, fuck you, Chicago. I've already, I already offended them by telling them that I think that naked ray gun might just be a Chicago thing. I'm out. Fuck you. <laughs> I told you, I told you this would be the reaction I'd get. Uh, but uh, no, because I, I, like, I was thinking about this on the way down here. Chicago, responsible for some of the greatest bands in, of all time. But the first wave of Chicago, there's a lot of great bands. And I love the effigies. I love Articles of Faith and, you know, Big Black and everything. But there's not a lot in that first era, first couple of eras of Chicago hardcore. And it really seems to come into its own and explode in, in the 90s. Oh, God, how long are we going to do this, Damon? <laughs> I mean, this is... Well, this is the thing. I want to have both you on for real podcasts, and I'm trying to avoid something that will come up organically <laughs> in that conversation. Believe me, I could punish you guys about Anger House for the entire time allotted. <laughs> well, I mean, it's weird because there is... Why a double there's seven a gold, there's, You got a golden period there. We got Life Sentence, Out of Order, mm-hmm. Bo Stiff, stuff like that, and I don't know how big that all got. Well, Bo Stiff... Like, I think Life Sentence sold a shit ton of shirts because Metallica wore their shirts. Yeah. I don't know how many people actually bought the 12-inch. And Big Black, know. I guess, got out and got popular. Oh, yeah, absolutely, for sure. But well, not, Effigies actually toured a ton. You know, They did, but, yeah. but not like... I don't know, just when, when you think about all the stuff that happens in the late 90s, mid-90s, early 90s, and the stuff that it begets into the 2000 with, like, you know, Rise Against and, and like, you know, the touch-and-go stuff that's still coming out of that point. There's a lot of big things coming out of the city. Well, you're also... I mean, there's different worlds there too mm-hmm. especially in Chicago when you talk about it because I mean there's like on one hand you could be talking about the world of touch and go and then you could get into like Southside hardcore namely Crudos those are two completely different worlds but, but there's a were, gap in between you know, and they do intersect there were people that existed in both those worlds which I find that's oh, what I find well, amazing about Pleasure yeah. so and that, so like that's and I think that's like Chicago is one of those unique places where it's all that tied to punk still. Like, we have a diverse scene in Toronto, but it, it's like never should, should those two ships meet type thing, mm. you know? Yeah. Not like the broken social scene people were hanging out with the swarm. <laughs> right. You know. That just a little bit blew my mind. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> was it Chris? Tell me, was it Chris from the swarm? Yeah, it was Chris from the swarm. Of course it was. You know, yeah. And also, I really want to know mainly is how does Hi-Fi and the Roadburners fit into this? That's after we left. Yeah, that is after, after we left. Right at the gate. It is after I... we left. No one understood how Hi-Fi and the Roadburners fit in anything. But, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is like the, you know, when we, when, when we first started going to shows or when I first started going to shows, which was a couple of years later than Patty, um, you know, a lot of those bands were already kind of done. Like the effigies were done. Um, Naked Ray Gun was... The first show we ever got kicked off of. Uh, you're right. The first Early show we Billingsgate, ever, we were yeah. supposed to open we for the effigies. For the effigies. And this is when they were still not really... Like, like they yeah. maybe had broken up and got back together or something. And, yeah, and we got... What's it, like, a month in advance? They were like, oh, yeah, no. Right. <laughs> and then... <laughs> like, whoever was doing the show was like, no reason at all either. It was like, oh, yeah, and you're not on that show. Thanks, though. But a lot, a lot of that, you know, those... Those bands from that earlier part of Chicago, like they, they just didn't. They weren't maybe as catchy as some of the other bands. They weren't. I mean, like they were legendary here, but I think what you're saying is like they never. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I guess blew up or, or you know what I mean? Like never. They're never not had like that big you thing. know the SSD or the Big Boys or right. one of those bands that kind of. They're just not remembered. 
in the same way. In and I'd say Naked way, Ray yeah. Gun arguably is the closest to that. Sure. But yeah. then comes the 90s and everything changes. Like you have, you know, obviously Dillinger 4 in some capacity comes out of this, but also Charles Bronson, Los Crudos, Rise Against, right. know, Alkaline Trio, Lawrence Arms, uh, Sea and Cake. Uh, I mean, the first, the first, like, you know, I guess small show I went to was, was Life Sentence and Only the Strong, which I know is ultimately where you're trying to go with this. But I, dude, I don't think that was Only the Strong. That was X Factor. <laughs> uh, you're right. No, it was X Factor. You're, you are X absolutely Factor. right. I was just talking I'm to Perry corrected. about this. X Factor, little known pre-Only the Strong band Whoa. that not only included Tony Victory, but also included Perry from the Templars on bass. Yeah. What? Straight Edge Hardcore Band. Yeah. yeah. I was just talking to Perry about it last week. Yeah. Last week. Do they record? Uh, Not as I, I, I honestly don't know, but I don't think so. If they, I don't, I don't think demo? they did. I think Tony would have put it out at some point. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that is. But I didn't even mean that derogatory. That <laughs> <laughs> just immediately got laughter. But you know, I, I like his bands. I think I think the essence is a killer song. Yeah, the essence. Yeah. <laughs> the essence. So, you, uh, Tony, Tony um, started doing shows in his basement out in the, out in the western suburbs. And it was called Club Blitz, and and um, and you know, the New York hardcore bands were were coming more and more um, on tour, and you know that was where they would play. But it's also where I saw like Fifteen for the first time play. I mean, everyone kind of played there. Integrity. I think they did Didn't play with 15 integrity. Play with integrity. Which was sick, but they. You I think that happened. You are blowing my no. fucking mind, Patty. No, like, yeah. <laughs> Because there was something where, like, 15 had, like, a show fall through. You're right. You're exactly so I think it was, right. like, the Ivy League guys mm-hmm. that kind of hooked them up to jump in. It was, like, an integrity show. That yeah. would, yep, that's you're the right. greatest show of all time. That's you're some right. Chicago 1990 <laughs> shit for you right there. Yep. And it totally made sense. Did, did, did Billingsgate I mean, open it? Please say Billingsgate open it. We didn't play that show. We were just there. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you can kind of say what you want about what happened over the years with Victory or how big it got. But at that time, which is maybe 89-ish, 88-ish, like, you know, he was, they were doing shows in their basement out of that house. It was super cool, and it was way better than, you know, coming down to the Cubby Bear or wherever a few shows happened at the time. Um, and then, you know, that took the course that it took. Bands got bigger. The label obviously got bigger, and all that kind of stuff happened. And then the bands that I think you're talking about later, like, that's all kind of the reaction to that, right? Like, yeah. all those, you know what I mean? Charles Bronson, all those bands. That's ultimately, that's the, it's, honestly, it's, maybe it's not that different from what happened in New York. Like, we've got... All the big New York hardcore bands, CBGBs, Revelation Records, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually you end up with ABC No Rio and mm-hmm. all those amazing bands. Or even know, before and, that, Rev. Because that oh, was right, a reaction right. to a lot of the classic yeah. dudes starting yeah. to play more metal hardcore. You know? Also, uh, not to get too off topic, but Victory 1 to 10, kind of better than Rev 1 to 10. <laughs> I don't know. No. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, David. Well, oh, where you? Yeah, fuck you guys clapping now. Wait. <laughs> Only Joe was the dissenting opinion when I brought this up earlier. Well, Vic- victory one is inner strength. That's not good. Victory inner strength. Oh, damn! All these years later, inner strength. Damn, right to I mean, the we throat. We didn't think it was man. good at the time. Inner strength isn't good, but it's kind of interesting that the I first guess. record is from California, and it's like this weird seven right. seconds melodic yeah. hardcore thing. Yeah. And then insight was not. Great. That's killer. No. That's killer. And then, like seven inch. And then I, uh, it sounds self-deprecating, but Billingsgate was not killer. great. And then Integrity was amazing. So like that's you know, but that's the first. Well, there was a debate about whether who was third or fourth or who was first or, or second or third. I can't remember between Integrity and us because both our records were out at the. Or maybe it was us and Insight. Whatever. I don't and then know. it got. No, no, it was, it was you guys and Integrity. And then Integrity, integrity. got pulled out of print. 
maybe that was it. But anyways, like a after that, it definitely hit the ground running. Integrity was amazing, but um, but the f that's the first three records right there, and not good. Uh, we're gonna have to disagree, uh, <laughs> agree to disagree on this one, I'm afraid, because Eric, I think those are amazing albums. Um, but right. but no, you're right. Like, Canadian. And it is. I think you're. <laughs> Yeah, it gives us uh, the Drake vision where we can see it all from the right. six. Um, but I, I kind of think like what you said, like it being a reaction, like the ABC No Rio is a great comparison because you also have people that jumped over from the old scene to the new scene with the ABC No Rio. Mm -hmm. Like you have Moondog and, and some of those types of bands. And then here you also had people like people from bands like Bloodthirst and all these like sort of like harder. Look, but we're also, we're kind of putting the carriage for the horse here a little bit because you also have like, like, like uh, Doghouse, or not, not Doghouse, I'm sorry, um, uh, fucking... Anger House, we can get no, to that not, right not now. Not Anger House, no, no, no. <laughs> Underdog. Records, Underdog, yeah. Which is a huge Underdog thing records. that I don't think it's talked right, about right. enough yeah. now. I mean, Underdog is just like exclusively local stuff, you know? And yeah. I mean, they did, they did shows, they had parties at their loft. They, that was know? Doug Ward from like ID Under... And uh, it was a well, collective. later Underdog a bunch Records. of bands, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Underdog well, I Records. Talking about the band Underdog, no, which oh, we yeah. could talk about also for a while because <laughs> I love that. that stuff. Let's talk about know. Eight Bark. Let's Does get into it, this. Uh, Eight Bark, right? Exactly. After I did Under Steel Mill, man. Yeah, Dead they're Steel. going. Uh, do you know that single? No, that's the one you need. I gotta get that one. Dead Steel Mill was like amazing. Dead Steel Mill, I do, yeah. and it's got the right yeah. on the side. But both that was the first band I ever saw at the Fireside Bowl. I think they're gonna be. I think this is our get off the stage music that they're playing in the background right now. All right, but. Bobo you only stiffs. think that because it's Naked Raygun. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> do you think? Would you say Bopal Stiffs most underrated Chicago band ever? No. They're, they're, but they're they were they're great. They were a great band. I, I wouldn't oh. say the most underrated band. Who's don't don't ask me. Completely who it is. different. Oh, well, you gotta completely say, different genre, but gear. Gear. Gear is, is a band that's that is that was a great. And Jeff Johns band. was supposed to do the reissue of the seven inch back in the mm. day, but then he just never put it out. What? Yeah, there's a right? issue of the seven inch with a different sleeve. It's got a blue sleeve. Yeah, Gear was a band that Jeff, never had its day. Jeff that was a great, great band. Maybe, but then he was going to reissue it. Oh, Joe, do you know that thing? There's two different covers of the Gear seven inch. I'm trying to get Jeff Johnson later on. There's multiple covers for tonight. it. I remember that. We could take this up in the after podcast where we're going to talk to Lawrence Arms about their uh, warped memories and things like that. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, guys, thank you for making part of my Thanks, dream buddy. a reality. <laughs> These guys will be back for part twos, right. whether they like it or not. Right. Hey, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Vans. Thank you, House of Vans, because this has been a lot of fun. And really appreciate you sweating it out with me. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Patty. Woo! That was amazing. Oh, it was short. Too short. Painfully too short. But believe me, all those people will be back for part twos. And in some cases, I'm sure part eights. Because they're going to go to part eight. Uh, but yeah, that was great. Thank you very much again to the fine people at Vans uh, for presenting this podcast. And also for giving me the opportunity to do that. Because that was, oh, tons of fun. Speaking of tons of fun, next week on the show... It's one that I've been wanting to do forever. It's someone that uh, I think through doing the course of the show, my respect for has only grown because this is someone that was a lot of people's first exposure to punk and specifically hardcore because this band was kind of like the Pied Piper going around America and, and inspiring people. And 
And I'm just beside myself that he's on the show next week because next week on the show, it's Jello Biafra of Lard, of the Dead Kennedys, of Guantanamo School of Music, of of spoken word, of record collecting fame, of so much. We had an amazing afternoon. I'm going to get into it all next week, uh, but we finally, at the end of it, got to sit down and do this podcast. So big thank you to Melanie Kay. You'll hear more about her involvement next week and Eric, and, and we'll go into it next week. But all you need to know is that next week on the show, it's Jello fucking Biafra. So thank you, everyone, for listening Thank you again to Vans and the House of Vans and all of you, all of you for being into this show and talking to me about this show and listening and subscribing and telling your friends and doing all that, that BS because it means a lot and I'm, I love doing this thing. I'm sorry it's sporadic right now because of the travel I'm doing. My buddy Yuji's in the background setting up his sound gear because we have to hop on a plane in a few hours to fly to Great Whale uh, to do more of this wrestling TV show, but I appreciate all of you for sticking with this podcast because I promise you it's only going to keep getting better. Be yeah, eh, I'm going to keep it at that. Only going to keep getting better. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening. Go out there and make your own culture and I will see you next week. <laughs>